Let's uh, stand for the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 12 is uh, the passage that we'll be in together this morning. And I just want to read really the first verse as we prepare to study God's word together. David writing, here's his prayer request. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Let's pray together. Father, first of all, I simply want to thank you that that is a prayer request that you can answer, you can save. You're mighty to save. Father, I pray that you would awaken us unto prayerfulness, that if we're going to be anything as a church family, I pray in Jesus' name that we are a praying church. So we are praying for prayer. It's what we're asking. We see in your word that the people of God are distinguished by, marked by, and constantly participating in prayer. When we know you truly, we will pray to you faithfully. So use this morning, use Psalm 12, use your word, and may the Spirit of God awaken us to prayerfulness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated. We're in a series of sermons that uh, simply called the priority of prayer. Uh, so put it, put it a couple of ways. One, if the enemy could prevent us from doing anything, and we do have a spiritual enemy, if the enemy could prevent us from doing anything, it would be that he would prevent us from praying. I really do believe that. I think the enemy doesn't mind what we do so long as we do not pray. And on the flip side of that, if the Spirit of God could accomplish anything with great power among us, it would be a movement of great prayer. So this is a fourth or fifth week that we're in this study of uh, sermons, and we started sort of with just a word picture, just kind of get our heads around uh, that prayer to the church is sort of like the match that lights the fire. We used several weeks ago the example that my family, if it's cool enough, we love to get our fire pit out, right? And we get the, the wood and the logs, and the children love to get everything that possibly can be burned in our yard. We just collect it, and we put it in that fire pit. And how silly it would be if you came and found us around the fire pit with our marshmallows and our Hershey bars to make s'mores or to gather around it to get the heat and the light when it's not lit. You'd say that's so foolish, but I really do think that that image is indicative of where a lot of churches are activities into things that can burn but without prayer it doesn't light does that make sense and a fire's got two purposes one is to provide light and another is to provide heat and that is the purpose of a church to proclaim the light of the gospel and the heat as it were to love and put others first that they would be drawn near to the light of the gospel and prayer is the match that lights the fire and also as we're around the fire pit you know this if you've uh, uh, got a got a fireplace or whatnot that periodically you got to come and sort of poke that thing right poke and prod and let the air get underneath and for the fire to come again so one of the things we've been trying to say that I've been trying to emphasize is that prayer is the match that lights the fire and the prodding and adjusting that keeps the fire going there's a reason that the apostles early on in the life of the church had to say we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word why did they say they had to devote themselves it's real simple you have to continually be devoted to prayer because you will quickly drift from it. And the opposite of prayerfulness is self-sufficiency. And friends, we just got to be real about this in the United States of America. We are a people who are self-sufficient. 
We think we can do this without the help of God. But I'll tell you this. God will accomplish nothing great in your life, in the life of this church, in this city, apart from the people of God in humility seeking him. The only thing that sustains prayer is the conviction that God is worthy to be sought. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 is where we began. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then we went into Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That brings us very quickly to this reality that though we see in the Bible that the people of God ought always to pray, as the scripture says in Romans 8, we do not know how to pray as we ought. So one of the adjustments we want to make is uh, frequently we'll come up with prayer requests. So one's a sort of click in the mind that needs to be adjusted is what are the Spirit's prayer requests? Because the Romans 8 says the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know to pray as we ought. And for the last several weeks, one simple but potentially transforming truth for our lives is that God has provided an entire book in the Bible that the Spirit of God will use to help you in your praying. And it is called the book of Psalms. This is the believer's prayer book. And so for this is now the third week, we're taking one psalm and sort of working that out. How do the psalms help us to pray? It starts with humility. We don't know how to pray as we all. Have you ever been asked to do something and you didn't know how to do it? Ever been at your job and they asked you to do such and such? I mean, I'll never forget one of my first jobs. They asked me to wrap a gift. I just got to be honest with you. They handed me the gift. Now you need to go to the gift wrap table. And uh, friends, that did not go well. <laughs> they had someone else wrap the gift. I think they tried to be kind and she wanted to unwrap it and make sure it was the right thing. And then she just kind of handed it to somebody somebody else so with that said we don't know how to pray as we ought and 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 truthfully a, a healthy prayer life starts with admitting I don't know how to pray and then those psalms are going to help us in psalm 12 in particular will teach us how to pray for your children your grandchildren and the next generation I just tried to get however many phrases I could get in there so that we're talking about the generation that's coming behind us your children your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and the next generation. Wherever you are this morning, I believe that you, as a follower of Jesus, need to be concerned with, invested in, and helping the next generation. In Psalm 12, verse 1, David has a concern, and perhaps it's a concern that you share. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. And then jump down to verse 8. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. So two words, starting with the letter V, I just called to your attention. The faithful are vanishing and vileness is on the rise. That's his concern. Those are the thoughts that bracket this psalm in. And I'm asking you, do you have that same concern? Do you look around and say, where are the faithful men and women of God? Where are those who are on their knees before the Lord? Where are those who really are putting others first? Where are those who really are demonstrating Christ-like love and proclaiming the gospel? 
the vanished, are they, are they gone? And then simultaneously, verse 8, vileness is not just tolerated. He's saying vileness is what? Exalted. Vileness is celebrated among the children of man. And David, as one who is after God's own heart, has these concerns. So on the front end, I simply want to ask you, do you have a burden with the next generation or are you just irritated by the next generation? When I was a child, we would often play a sports in my side yard and there was a road right behind it and then there were two houses across the street. One house, if we were playing baseball and the baseball went in that yard, game was over. Nobody was going in that yard to retrieve the baseball. And I'll tell you why. Because we had been chewed out to the point where we're not going in Mrs. So-and-so's yard anymore. Because I don't know what she had going in her life, but it felt like she just sat there all day looking out the blinds, waiting for the children's baseball to come in her yard. And then she was going to fly out that. I mean, she was fast. She was going to fly out that front door and let us have it. Beside her, beside her was another house. And sometimes I would hit the ball, and it would be a foul ball, and I would just start to pray, oh, Lord, please, please don't let it go in this house, this yard, let it go in the other. The other yard, they were loved children, welcome children, set up a baseball field for us in their yard for us and invited us to come in and play. I love what Chuck Swindoll says. He said, when it comes to a child, when they look at an adult, every adult either has a yes face or a no face. Do you know what I mean? You remember when you were a child? You looked up at an adult, and you saw there was either a yes face or a no face. Can I ask you something? How was Jesus' face when it came to children? You have a yes face or a no face. The apostles had no faces. You remember? So no, these children, they don't need to bother Jesus right now. Get them out of here. You remember Jesus, the Bible says, rebuked them. He stepped in. He intervened. He said, uh-uh. You what? Let the children come to me. His heart is for the next generation. And here's a, a pastoral concern that I have for the local church is increasingly in local churches, the congregations are primarily made up of either older folks or younger folks. I'll tell you, when I stand up here, one of my great blessings is to look out and see some, and I say this as a participant, some gray hair, right? (laughs) And then I see, I mean, honestly, in this room right now, and this, friends, is one of the great privileges of our church family. Folks in their 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s, 20s, teens, and under. And friends, that's a privilege. And I believe, and I believe it is a healthy marker. And we want to, we want to use that for, for good in the life of our church. And it begins with those who are older, concerned about investing in and praying for, and please hear me carefully, and with the next generation. I want you to hold your spot there in uh, Psalm 12 and turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. And I want, to, I want you to see what it is that we are engaged in. I think it's helpful because when it comes to Uh, sometimes what can happen is you look down on the next generation or frustrated by the next generation uh, or confused by the next generation. You just remember, the Bible says our struggle is not with flesh and blood. 
but against the rulers, the principalities, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Don't ever let your anger or resentment be focused on people. Know what's going on behind of it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6 is a wonderful paragraph that I want you to see an important truth in. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, this is important. I hope you see that you are a steward of the gospel, and one of the primary responsibilities you have is to take that gospel and pass it to the next generation. How did you receive it? How do you have that opportunity? Uh, from Paul's perspective, you received it by the mercy of God. Verse 2, here's how we're not going to pass it along. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Listen, this is important. Verse 4, in their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Has that happened to you? Have you seen Jesus that way? That you walked in darkness and then you beheld his glory. Now, verse 4 says that we have an enemy whose entire mission statement can be summarized with these words. His purpose is to blind the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So as we work our way through Psalm 12, I, I think what we'll see here in Psalm 12 is as the, as the faithful are vanishing and vileness is exalted, there is a strategy behind it. And the ultimate goal, are we tracking together, is that the minds of unbelievers would be blinded. So let me use this visual aid. This is a blindfold of sorts. So we got three things that are going to go on in Psalm 12, and we're going to see them very clearly. And I want you to think of it in three steps, all right? So one is blindfold before the eyes. The other is it's going to be pulled tighter. And the third step is it's going to be tied in a knot. And the result of that is you can't see. So if you've got an outline and want to follow along, I want you to use Psalm 12. And uh, on the outline, Psalm 12 warns us about three things that blind us from seeing God clearly. Psalm 12 warns us about three things that blind us from seeing God clearly. Now, I love young people. I love students. Now, our students, you pray for them because at this particular season of our church family, they got to deal with me twice, right? Sunday school, I teach them, and then they got to come in here, and we go at it again. But, but I love students, and I got to just tell you, I'm, I'm biased, I understand, but I think right at this church right now, we have one of the greatest group of young people that there is on the face of the planet. But I also want to tell each young person that's here, we're going to start to walk through this psalm, and I might just come up to you after the service and ask you, because I think what you'll see is as we walk through this psalm, you're going to say, yes, that's exactly, that's exactly the world that I am living in right now. And so I want to give to 
our students a warning, but to our church family collectively. We've got to identify that there are three things that blind us from seeing God clearly. And these three things are going to come off clear as day from this psalm as we continue to read. I'm going to describe for you the strategy that's behind blinding people from the glory of, of Christ. So let's look at the psalm and start in verse 2. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Yes, O Lord, you, O Lord, rather, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Okay, so let's get our blindfold ready to go. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the glory of Christ. Because, friends, here's what the enemy knows. Once you see the glory of Christ, ball game. It's over. Have you ever seen him? It's what we've been singing about. And those of you who've seen him say, yes, I would rather have Jesus than anything. So the only, the only, the only strategy the enemy could have is let's just keep him from seeing it. Let's keep him from seeing it. Here's the first thing he uses is vanity. Vanity. Focusing on things that are ultimately empty. We get this from Psalm 12, verse 2. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. The Hebrew word translated lies in Hebrew, uh, Psalm 12, verse 2, is literally emptiness. Everyone utters emptiness to his neighbor. They, think, they speak about and focus on things that are empty. That's what vanity is. Focusing on things that are ultimately empty. Now, this generation is growing up in a time when more information is accessible about more subjects than at any other point in human history. Are they not? The technological revolution has happened, but what seems to have happened is that the trivial, I mean the really trivial, has, has manifested itself as urgent. This morning I went to um, fill up my truck with gasoline and uh, I always have an uh, obstacle because I, I put my credit card in and I always ask a question that should be easy to answer, but I can't get it right in my mind. What is my zip code? Does this happen to anybody else in Rocky Mount? Is it 03 or is it 04? I can never remember. I used to remember it. It's 03 because, uh, or 02 or 05. I, don't, I used to have three children. That's how I remembered it. Now I have four children, and I just got all sorts of things going on in my mind when I'm trying to punch it in. I usually punch it in wrong, but then I get, get to where I need, and I'm pumping the gasoline, and gas station TV comes on. Have you seen this? We're people who can't go four minutes at the pump anymore. I went to dinner with my family the night. We could not have a conversation. Everywhere we turned, flat screen, flat screen, flat screen. Oh, and by the way, here's the urgent news that I needed to hear on a Sunday morning as I was pumping my gasoline. Apparently, are y'all ready for this? Selena and Justin, back on. That's what so urgently needed to be communicated to me while I was 
pumping my gasoline. You understand what I'm talking about? Vanity. Things that do not matter in eternity. Exalted as if they are urgent. Now this is what's happening in, in, our, in our generation. This isn't the first generation. We've been going at this for a long time. I mean, think about the majority of what's posted on social media, the average video that goes viral and becomes an obsession for a short period of time. How much of it actually matters? How much of it's actually important or, or urgent? Vanity is all about su- taking something that's not important at all and then exalting it to a position of supreme importance. Vanity is the enemy's strategy. This is what we're talking about, to get you focused on things that don't really matter. Why? So that you never, ever, ever, ever think about things that really do. That's the whole strategy. Fill up your hours. Fill up your social media feed. Fill up your life on the trivial so that you never think about things that are eternally important, like my soul, like the Word of God. Like, what happens when I, when I die? I mean, I would venture to guess that there are more people in American churches this morning that can tell you the three judges on uh, uh, The Voice than can name eight of the twelve apostles. Now, here's what just happened when I said that. Eighty people in the room said, it's not three judges, it's four judges. It just happened right now. You know what I'm saying? Because we've exalted the trivial in order to neglect the eternal. I think about um, my oldest uh, daughter when she was little, little bitty. She went through this phase where she, you know, when she was about a year and a half, two years old, just learning to walk, was obsessed with bubbles. I could not get through the door when she did not run up to me. Bubble, 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 bubble. Meaning she wanted to give me a little, little jar of bubbles, blow the bubbles, and guess what she did at that point? She just ran after all of them, and then they popped. And she just thought that was the greatest thing in the world. And when I think about that, I think that's who we are. There's more bubbles out there, and we're going to chase them, and then they're going to pop. And that's our whole life. Vanity is about filling up your life with what's trending on Twitter, what's posted on Facebook, what's releasing this month on Netflix, what's next to scroll through on Instagram, how many likes did your post generate, how long is your snap streak. It's entertainment as life. I read this this week. I found it was interesting. I just passed it along. Not a major point, but an article in the Atlantic was uh, uh, writing an article about those who are uh, 11, 12, 13 years old and some of the research that's coming back. The author, Gene Twinge, if I'm articulating that right, says the advent of the smartphone and its cousin, the tablet, was followed quickly by the hand-wringing about the effects of screen time. But the impact of these devices has not been fully appreciated. Now, this is not coming from a biblical or Christian perspective, right? Uh, but the impact of these devices has not been fully appreciated and goes far beyond the usual concerns about curtailed attention spans. The arrival of the smartphone has radically changed every aspect of teenagers' lives from the nature of their social interactions to their mental health. These changes have affected young people in every corner of the nation, in every type of household. The trends appear among teens poor and rich of every ethnic background in cities, suburbs, and small towns. Where there are cell phone towers, there are teens living their lives on their smartphone. Result? Rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed since 2011. It's not an exaggeration, she writes, to describe this generation 
IGEN, that's the new buzz term, as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Much of the deterioration can be traced to their phones. And this is my humble opinion. You say, why? I say Psalm 12 too. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor, emptiness to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. It's draining. It's draining when your life is caught up in all the emptiness. And I'm not saying this goes for every student. Please hear me. That's not what I'm saying. But when your life is caught up in all the emptiness and all the double talk. You know what double talk is? Of course, saying one thing when another's uh, thing's true. And there's a lot of pressure to have your whole life programmed, fun, exciting, and beautiful online when off the screen, man, well, you remember when you were 11 and 12 and 13 years old? All the stuff that you had going on? Trying to develop meaningful relationships when the primary means of communication is a, a, a phone that you don't actually even talk on? <laughs> it's the trivial, exalting the trivial. It's vanity. We track them together, it gets the blindfold right here. I can't see things. I can't see things clearly. I can't see what's important. Everyone utters emptiness to his neighbor. So if we love, concerned with, (laughs) want to proclaim the gospel to the next generation, hey, we need to be wise, careful, and cautious from what we allow and prioritize in the lives of our children. Everyone utters emptiness to us. That's the first strategy is vanity, focusing on things that are ultimately empty. That leads us to the second one, and it follows right on its heels, is flattery. Flattery is saying only what other people want to hear and hearing only what you want other people to say. That's what flattery means. Psalm 12, verses 2 and 4. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Flattery becomes the spoken language in any culture where people give themselves over to vanity. Flattery is saying, I can only say what what is it that everybody wants to hear, and I'm only going to hear what I want other people to say. Flattery creates an environment where anything that challenges you or pushes you out of your comfort zone is not tolerated in the least. And increasingly, we live in a time when people refuse to listen to anything that they do not already agree with. And friends, the gospel confronts us in our sinfulness. And on the front end, the gospel confronts us with things that we do not want to here. That's why this is the strategy of the enemy. I'm going to take it, put it up, and now I'm pulling it back when it comes to flattery. You only pay attention to the voices that say what you want to hear. Hold your spot there in Psalm 12 and go with me to Isaiah, saying in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 30. And I want you to listen to what the Lord says to his people. I want you to see what had happened in their lives in the spiritual condition that they were in, that God has to send the prophet Isaiah inspired the Holy Spirit to speak to them. Isaiah chapter 30, beginning in verse number 9. For they are a rebellious people, 
lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. And notice what they request, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Listen to this, you don't have to turn there, but that's an Old Testament passage that sounds a whole lot like 2 Timothy chapter 4 in the New Testament. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Listen to me. You cannot be sober-minded if your life is given over to vanity. Does it make sense? You see the strategy? See how it's unfolding? I don't want to think about anything that's important. I just want to chill, binge watch 15 hours of TV and only want to hear what I want to hear. Make sense? So Paul says, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So blindfold comes up with vanity, focusing on things that are ultimately empty. Gets pulled tight when flattery comes along saying only what other people what other people want to hear and hearing only what you want other people to say. And then it's only a matter of time when those things are in play that we get to the third. And that's tying the night not tightly. And that's blasphemy. Attempting to be your own Lord and Savior. You're going to get it right here from Psalm 12. This is what blasphemy means. May the Lord, verse 3, cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Rings back and harkens back to Joseph, right? You will rule over us? If you remember that study. But this, see what happened? That's what it means to be blind. My life is consumed with things that are empty, but I've made them urgent. And that's led me to a life where I will not tolerate, listen to anybody else's perspective or opinion, and then ultimately, nobody can tell me what to do. Friends, is this not the air we breathe? This is us. Psalm 12. Nobody can tell me what to do, including who? The one who made me and the one to whom I will give account. This is the brand of lies, blasphemy, that says, this is my life. I will decide what is right for me. I will be my own Lord. I am my own master. I am my own savior, and I am my own God. No one can rule over me. This is proclaiming the attributes of deity unto yourself. And these are the tools of the enemy. Hey, he tried these same things on Jesus, didn't he? Temptation in the wilderness. What have we got going on? Hey, turn these stones into bread. Take something that's temporary and make it priority, right? Take these stones. Just, just get through the day. Just, it's, it's the temptation of vanity. 
Live life for something that's fleeting and temporary. Be like Esau. Trade in your birthright for a pot of stew, right? Flattery. Hey, put yourself on the top pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself off. Make a scene and have everyone talk about you. You can be trending in Jerusalem by nightfall if you'll do that in blasphemy. All the kingdoms of the world shall be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. Vanity, flattery, blasphemy. Vanity puts the blindfold over. Flattery pulls it tight. Blasphemy creates the knot. I want you to see, turn with me, as we continue to see that ultimately all the Old Testament points to Jesus. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, I'm going to start in verse 24, and I'm going to read to verse 44. And as I read, I just want you to see examples of vanity, examples of flattery, examples of blasphemy. Matthew 27, and beginning in verse 24, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him. They mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled him to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Every action, word, or attitude that you see a human being demonstrate in that passage fits into one of those three categories doesn't it it's either vanity the most important event in history is taking place and you've got a collection of soldiers who are just casting lots for his clothes just playing a game just another day blinded don't even recognize what's going on even though Jesus is just a few feet away. And friends, that is how so many people live their lives. Filling up my life on shallow, empty 
things year after year after year. We see flattery. Pilate is eaten up with it. He knows what he should do, but he will not do it. Why not? Because he's afraid of saying anything that they do not want to hear. And so he, this self-righteous act, hey, I'm going to wash my hands over this. It's flattering. Blasphemy, of course, over and over and over. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. If you are the Son of God, come down. He trusts in God. He's, he, he, let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Flattery, or vanity, flattery, blasphemy. And because of them, what happened? For the most part, they're all blinded to his glory. And I'm asking you this morning, can you see it? Can you see the glory of the sinless one given in your place? Or are you like those who were there and just eaten up, consumed by one of these three things, if not all of them? That's not all that Psalm 12 has to say to us, though, friends. So we'll turn back there, keeping the cross firmly in our minds. Because Psalm 12 also helps us remember three things that God does and can accomplish. Amen? So Psalm 12, yes, it outlines and clarifies this threefold strategy that the enemy has to blind us from seeing the glory of the gospel. But it also helps us remember three things that God does and can accomplish. The top of the list is this, that God listens. God listens. You say, where does Psalm 12 say that? The whole psalm. This is the great hope behind our praying, isn't it? That he's listening to us. David responds to what he sees and he laments, but he's not complaining. He's not just talking about, oh, remember the good old days or despairing over the state of things, but he responds in prayer. And I'm telling you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, that's the appropriate response. Not to kick back and complain. David prays. When was the last time you humbly and sincerely on your knees before God prayed for the next generation? I'm asking and exhorting if you have children, moms and dads, you need to pray together. Pray together before you eat together. Amen? I mean, you miss a few meals if, it, if it's required. And pray. The generation that forgets God is the generation that was preceded by a generation that didn't pray. Does that make sense? And we're so quick to say, oh, them, th these, these days. Here's two quick things. One, do you know what this generation is really struggling with? The very same things you would be if you were in their shoes. That's the truth. Very same things. And secondly, secondly, so much of what they are struggling with and thinking through and, um, and, and learning is in response to a generation that has preceded them and has not been prayerful, has not been engaged. Friends, you turn a generation over to the world and the world will bring them in. It's a tragedy if the enemy's more 
involved in influencing a generation than the church is. Take very seriously that God has called us to pray for the next generation. In just a few minutes, we're going to have our invitation, and that's what we're going to do, where you're going to pray for the next generation. But not just here and just a few minutes after the sermon is over. I'm asking some of you that this is one of the primary things you do in your life. You pray for them, and then you also pray with them. And nine times out of ten, when, this is just real, real practical, this is really, really practical, nine times out of ten, if there are going to be healthy relationships developed between generations, it's the older generation that has to take the step of initiative to bring in the younger generation. Does that make sense? So you've got to take some initiative and pray and love and not just <laughs> complain about the next generation. In other words, we want to put to great usefulness the blessing that we have as a church family to have multiple generations because while the blindfold is a powerful weapon did you get the thrust of second corinthians chapter four yes he blinds but we proclaim jesus christ is lord god's the one who said let light shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, even if this is firmly in place, as a matter of fact, can we just say it this way? Do you know who wrote that passage? A great blasphemer who was eaten up with flattery and vanity most of his life until, you remember what happened? He's on his way to Damascus. And what happens? The light comes on. He writes a little bit later in Ephesians chapter 1, for this reason, I have not ceased to pray for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ would give you, here's Paul's prayer request, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened so that you can see the hope to which you have been called and what is the immeasurable riches of the glory of Christ Jesus. Now, one, we have to be a people convinced that God really does listen Vanity and flattery and blasphemy are powerful tools of the enemy. And many will be blinded because of them. But the light of the gospel is even more powerful. When wielded by those, listen to me because this is important. When it's shared by those who do not live for vain things, but for eternal things. By those who are not consumed with flattery, but speak the truth in love. And those who are not given over to blasphemy but to faithful gospel proclamation. And I just recall to you, 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you're going to do this, listen to what Paul said, be sober-minded, endure suffering. You've got to be prepared for it. Now, now, I want to say very clearly, the American church has dealt with a minimal suffering. But as time progresses, I'm just going to tell you this, if you're going to faithfully proclaim the gospel, listen to Paul's counsel. Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Because this is not a message of, the, it's, it's a, a powerful gospel, but we've got an enemy who blinds the minds of unbelievers through vanity, flattery, and blasphemy. And a whole lot of people are not going to be eager to give up their vanity, give up their flattery, and their blasphemy. Second thing that God does, God keeps and guards. Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7, the words of the Lord are pure words. I hope this is true for you, and I pray more and more that it be true for my life. When you do go through life, and you go to the gas station, and out to eat, and you just can't get away from all the vanity, you ever open up your Bible and say, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Here's something that is pure and righteous 
and holy, and it's actually food for my soul. The words of the Lord are pure words. That's in contrast to the double-hearted, flattering lips of the ungodly. They're like silver refined in a furnace or the ground. To, to put it another way, uh, over time, so much of what we focus on is empty in the end. But the word of God, instead of losing value over time, his word proves more reliable, more trustworthy, more sure. Like one person told me one time, spend less time on Facebook and more time seeking his face in this book. That's good counsel. Now, let me just say, parenthetically, if honestly, and and this... um, Progress with the Lord always starts with honesty. So honestly, in your life right now, if you have zero desire to read the Word, I mean, I'm just talking honest. If you just got zero desire, you already know tomorrow's going to come and you would rather do a thousand things than be in His Word. Here's what you do. You start to ask Him, God, give me a hunger for Your Word. God, make it so that I see You. It's a step of faith. I don't see it right now, how glorious You are. Would You help me? Would You help me? Far um, uh, be it from us not to ask the Lord for these things. He guards and he keeps. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in the furnace of the ground, purified seven times. Yes, O Lord, you will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. And I want you to see verse 5, lest we miss it, uh, a vain, flattering, blasphemous generation becomes a generation that does terrible things to one another because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety of which he longs. In other words, the, the, flattery, or the vain, flattering, blasphemous generation has an effect, and that is that people are destroyed and demolished, usually the people with the least power um, in the generation. But God said, now I'm going to arise, I'm going to keep, and I'm going to guard. And then the other thing that this psalm says with great power is that God saves. Now, where we started? You see the first word there in Psalm 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Now, I'm asking God that he would give me this heart for my children in the next generation. I do not want my children to just sort of drift along. Do you know what I mean? Just sort of coast along, just drift. And yeah, they come to church. And, you know, in our, in our situation, they're the pastor's children, so they should be well-behaved. And, and they have to love Jesus because their dad's a pastor. That's not what I want for my children. I want them to love Jesus with all their heart, not because I'm a pastor, but because I follow Jesus and I've seen him for myself. Do you know what I mean? I want them to see him clearly. I love that uh, song we sing. Um, when you see his face, I'm not going to get the lyrics quite right. The things of earth grow so strangely dim. It's true, isn't it? I don't want them to just be church attenders. I want them to be Christ worshipers. I want them to abide in Christ and for him to be their severe, uh, supreme rather treasure. I want them to be, verse 1, saved. So we're going to pray for a generation to grow up at Calvary Baptist Church that loves Christ more passionately than any generation has come before. Amen? I'm asking if you'll, if you'll join me in praying along these lines. We're going to stand together. We're going to pray together. 
So what I'm going to ask you, um, with your heads bowed, I'm, I'm going to ask you to think of one person. Think of one person in the next generation that you can pray for. Perhaps it would be that you would pray that God would save him or her, that God would guard and keep him or her. Did you see what Jesus was doing while they were blaspheming against him? While their lives were consumed with vanity and flattery, did you see what Jesus was doing? He was bearing the righteous wrath of his father in their place. What was he doing? He was answering this prayer request of Psalm 12, 1, wasn't he? Save, O Lord. Save, O Lord, for the faithful are gone. They'd all fled, but I want you to see it clearly, friends. They hadn't all fled. He's right there. He's right there in the midst of all of it. And he is saving, he is guarding, he is keeping. We're going to have an invitation song, and I'm going to invite you to pray. Strike a match this morning. Prod a fire specifically about praying for the next generation. Some of us need to walk out today, and we're, this is our, this is our, we're going to resolve this. I'm going to pray for the next generation instead of complain about the next generation. They're not going to be some generic group of people. I'm going to get to know somebody who's 11 and 12 and 13 and 16 and 18. Father, would you help us now? We confess we do not know how to pray as we ought. We need help. Father, we, we need help. Help this be a church of a whole lot of yes faces when it comes to the next generation. Help this be a place where children are welcomed and prayed for and loved and spurred on and encouraged. Most children in the world right now are simply looking for where are they loved. And I pray in Jesus' name, this will be a place where the next generation is loved and prayed for. Would you awaken, would you awaken a great movement of prayer by your spirit among the people of Calvary Baptist Church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.